We're starting a series uh, this afternoon that will uh, take us through the next few weeks, where we're um, doing something which makes preaching a bit dangerous, by which I mean it gives, us even more, it gives me even more ways to get it wrong, because we're looking at Jesus and a whole load of subjects that Jesus, in many ways, never spoke about. We're looking at Jesus and a whole load of different contemporary questions or topics um, or uh, facets of life. Things like debt or gender or shopping or leisure or work. And we're asking, well, when we look at or listen to what Jesus taught or said, what's he got to say to these things of everyday life? And um, very briefly, I do promise I'm going to keep it brief tonight because I can see lips starting to turn blue even as I speak. Um, I I want to kick us off on that partly by giving, uh, um, what's the best way of describing it, a sort of worked example of of how careful we've got to be with some of the things that, well, all of the things that Jesus said and applying them to our everyday lives. We're going to look at the parable of the talents and we're going to ask what it might have to say to our everyday lives and especially the question of, ambition. So on the one hand, Jesus seems in various places in the Gospels to speak against ambition. He says those of you who want to uh, be great should be humble. Don't lord it over others. Be humble and serve others. He uses parables to speak against being up at the top of the table and make sure you sit down the end and you might get called up. And yet in the parable of the talents, he seems to speak in favour of ambition. The one who gets uh, pilloried in this story is actually the one who seemed to lack ambition. But part of what I want to do this afternoon is point up at least three different ways in which we could get reading Jesus' parables, um, maybe say get it wrong is too strong, but where we can go awry, in the hope that partly it'll remind me as I'm preaching over these next few weeks, but also for all of us as we're listening and doing our own connections that we'll be aware of the potential pitfalls of coming to Jesus' teaching um, and misreading it to our own advantage, Um, sometimes our own disadvantage. Three things immediately that uh, seem to me that we have to avoid. The first is proof texting. Lifting a sentence of Jesus, uh, a saying of Jesus, out of context in order to make it say what we want it to say. Now, there are any number of things in the parable of the talents that we could pick Um, any of the things about um, attaining interest um, or about those those who haven't sort of made enough of what they've been given. It'd be very easy to come and pick a proof text that proves that our way of doing life and of viewing money or of viewing ambition is the right one. We could simply pick a sentence and say, well, look, it proves that Jesus was in favour of making much money as you can in any way possible, and therefore you've made as much in life as you can. There's a second, perhaps even more common thing that we do with the Bible, is that we come to Jesus with wanting answers to questions that he was never answering. There's a wonderful commentary I read um, during the week on this passage, the parable of the talents, um, that comes to the passage, I mean, it's completely straight-faced, it's not a take-off, it's a very serious academic um, uh, article on this passage that reads it as an attack on capitalism. Now, 
if you replay the story, that sounds completely counterintuitive. After all, in this story, it's the seeming capitalists who get praised by the master, and it's the one who's buried the money in the ground and not made any money out of it um, that seems to be uh, put down and thrown out. Um, but they say this. See if I can read my own writing without my glasses. It says, um, it speaks of the perils until the kingdom comes, and it warns to expect the rich to steal from the poor, and for followers of Jesus to expect to be punished for bringing, for um, burying ill-gotten wealth and refusing to use it to take more from the poor. In other words, they've said the master in this story isn't actually God. The master must be the bad figure because he's too capitalist. And therefore, it's actually a counterintuitive parable that tells you that actually if you're a follower of Jesus, you should bury all this ill-gotten gain and that therefore um, uh, you, you should expect trouble in this world. Now, I'm actually not saying whether that's right or wrong as a statement of how you should live, but actually that's a classic case of bringing to a passage our own baggage. And before too quick to point the finger, all of us will come to any of these passages of Jesus and all of these subjects, whether we're talking about gender, whether we're talking about debt, whether we're talking about leisure or work or today ambition, all of us come with our own baggage. The things we're really hoping Jesus is going to say, the the things we're really hoping Jesus is not going to say, the assumptions about life and about the big important questions that weren't necessarily assumptions that Jesus made. I don't think we can avoid that. That's who we are. We do all read it through our own set of spectacles. That wasn't an intentional reminder. But we do all come to it. We see it through our own worldview. The most important thing is not so much to try and be neutral, but to at least acknowledge that we're going to come to this from different angles. Here's a third um, danger. And that is to expect Jesus, or actually anywhere in the Bible, to give us concrete plans of work and of life that tell you and tell me exactly how we should live. And once we've found that, to then apply it to everybody else we meet. We find uh, something that speaks to us, and it makes us make a change in our own way of living, and then we go out and we try and change everybody else and the way that they live and the way they do their work and the way that they do their family. Whereas more often than not, The New Testament, the Bible as a whole, gives us principles. It gives us actually, most of all, a relationship with God. It gives us more about God than we can ever take in. It shows us who he is, his character, how he relates to us, and asks us to live a life that, as close as we can, reflects that life. And actually, when it gives um, concrete rules for living... It gives them in a specific context and a specific time. So when you go back into Leviticus, and there are chapters after chapter about mildew, it's not because actually God is fundamentally that bothered about mildew. You'll be (laughs) quite glad to hear. But actually, because in that context, at that time, it was one of those things that was to do with basic health and hygiene and cleanliness. So talking to a community that needed to learn how to live in their context as nomadic people, it was important. But actually, there's no point trying to go through Leviticus and taking out all the key verses and thinking, right, well, there's my plan for living. It's just not the way the Bible works. 
nor is it when we come to the New Testament and we say, what's the Bible got to say about ambition? Should I be ambitious in my job? Should I be ambitious for my kids? Should I be ambitious for my church? The New Testament isn't going to give us a point-by-point plan for how I should live. What it is going to give us is the person of Jesus. It is going to give us God incarnate, walking and talking, working through people's lives as they were then, and showing us the way that God worked in their lives in that context. We then have to apply them to where we are now. And the, the principle of one of the vicar factories up north, um, Tina Baxter, she was the principal there, um, made quite a lot of controversy in her day because when she taught preaching, she taught her um, ordinands that they should never apply anything. In other words, they should take a Bible passage, pull the principles out, and never apply them. They should never say, well, therefore, this is how we should live. And the reason that she gave was to say, well, you don't know anybody else's context. You don't know anybody else's life. You've never walked in their shoes, and the Bible wasn't written in their time. You can show them principles, you can show them Jesus, but you can't apply it for them. And I think up to a point, she's right. I've not walked in your shoes, you've not walked in mine. It's not going to be my job or Callum's job or anybody else's job to say, this is exactly how you should live your life because of this passage. Now, where I think she pushed it too far is I think there is a role in preaching to say, here are some of the ways you might apply it. Here are some of the things that it strikes me and challenges me on. But that then leaves the next 90% for you and I to do in response to what we've heard. You and I have to take what we hear and walk with it into the week. We have to decide what it is we're going to do with what we've read, with what we've heard. And that's true of what we're going to read in these next few minutes about ambition. So if those are some pitfalls or some challenges, how do we do it? Well, by far the most important thing has got to be to read it, whatever we read Jesus saying, in context. We have to ask, well, what was Jesus talking about? And Matthew makes it very clear that Jesus was teaching about the kingdom of God. It's in the midst of a whole bunch of parables that are kingdom parables. And he says again and again, this is what the kingdom is like. The kingdom is a bit like this. So he's not primarily talking about capitalism versus socialism. He's not primarily talking about your job, career path and ambitions. He's not primarily talking about parenting and what we hope for our kids. He's not primarily talking about money. He's talking about the kingdom of God. And unless we start there, we are simply ripping something completely out of context and making it serve our own purpose. The second thing we've got to do, which I've already said, is to look for the key principles, the things that thread through what Jesus said that show us what God is like, show us what his call on our life is like. But finally, the third thing is to remember that everything Jesus said was in the context of the whole of Scripture. There's no point assuming that Jesus said everything there was to say about, in this case, ambition, say, in that one little story. Jesus never set out to give us, right, here's the whole answer to money. Or here's the whole answer to what it means to be a parent. Or here's the whole answer um, to how you should handle your leisure time. Jesus taught the people that were in front of him. He taught them things they needed to know at the time. So we have to set this in the context of the whole of Scripture, the whole of the story from Genesis to Revelation, and see how they fit in. So what about the parable of the talents? Just for a few minutes, 
what might it have to say to us for our normal, everyday, Monday through Saturday lives? And particularly the question of ambition. Well, if this is a parable about the kingdom, that means that we must be careful not to narrow these talents too narrowly. That doesn't work, does it? You know what I'm trying to say. Not to pull it too narrow. Um, The word talent we have now taken to mean my gifts, my skills. But actually, talent, as Matthew wrote it, simply meant a sum of money. Actually, it was a huge sum of money. One talent was roughly what um, a labourer could earn in 15 to 20 years of labouring. So five talents was far more money than one person would generally earn in a lifetime. Okay, this is, we're talking about huge sums of money. That's what Jesus was trying to say. These three people have all been given a huge sum. Hundreds and hundreds of thousands of pounds. At very least, what Jesus is saying about the life of the kingdom. And when he talks about the kingdom, he's simply saying, what does life look like lived for the king? That's what the kingdom of God is. What does life look like lived for the king? Well, the first thing that it looks like is that we have been given a tremendous gift. And whether you take that gift quite narrowly and say, well, it's the gift of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus. Or if, I think, which makes more sense of the different amounts given, if we take it to mean much more widely the gift of life itself, everything that God gives me from my first breath to my last breath and everything in between, if those are my talents, if that's this gift God has placed in my lap, then the first thing this parable says to me is that we have been given something huge and precious, priceless even. But the second thing that it would say to me is that this gift of life that I've been given is not for myself. You notice each of these three servants is given a gift in order to provide a return for the master. They don't get to keep it afterwards, is the implication. They're doing it for him. He gives five talents to a servant. They earn another five. Those ten talents, the implication is, are given back to the master at the end. In other words, what their aim is, their ambition, you might say, is to provide a good return on the investment for the investor, not primarily for themselves. Their ambition is primarily for the master. The third principle, you might say, is that their key criteria for success is not in comparison with the others. So the criteria for success of the servant who gets it wrong is not that he's earned less than the other two. You notice that? Because actually the, 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 the one in the middle, the servant who's been given the, the sort of middle amount, he isn't told off for not earning as much as the 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 five-talent servant, he's commended because he's made the most of what he was given. In other words, the return is on what he's been given, not in comparison with anybody else. Isn't that the the very hardest thing in the Christian life, in in life itself? We are brought up, uh, I, I guess every generation has been brought up, entirely in comparison with others whether it's exams and tests, whether it's sports teams. I'm not saying that's a wrong and evil thing. It's simply this, that it goes in to the very core of our being, that my main criteria for success in terms of my ambitions is in comparison with the person next to me, in comparison with my brother or my sister, 
in comparison with my best friend, in comparison with my neighbour, in comparison with my parent or my spouse or my friend. The life of the kingdom, says Jesus, is precious beyond measure. It's been given to you to provide a return for the master who will return. But we don't measure our success in comparison with somebody else, but simply in comparison with what we've been given, with what return we have. So what does that say to ambition? My ambition for my career, for my kids, for my friendships, for my family, for my life as a whole. Well, if we define ambition as something like this, my ambitions are those goals or endpoints that give me motivation for how I live now. If it's something like that, if my ambitions are those goals that give me motivation for how I live now, then this reminds me that primarily my ambition is shaped by, all my ambitions are shaped more than anything else, by my relationship to the one who gave me life. And that actually is by far the most important thing that comes out of the parable. Because in the end, it's not actually that the, first ser- the third servant who had the least simply lacked financial acumen. It's not that he didn't go to the right advisor. It, it's not that the markets crashed on him. You get the impression from the story that if he tried to invest his money and lost half of it, it would still not have been a problem. Do you notice what happens when the master returns? The master says to him, why have you just buried it? And the servant says to him, ah, well, it's because I knew you're a hard man. You reap where you don't sow. And the master basically says, you liar. That's what he effectively says, you liar. Because if you really thought I was a hard man and I reap where I don't sow, you'd have at least put it in a bank and got some interest. Actually, the point was, you didn't want to do anything for me at all. That was the problem. If he'd actually believed what he said about the master, he'd have put it in a bank. He'd have got a few percent on it. No. The problem was that he had no relationship worth talking about with this master. He didn't want to do a thing for him. It was all too much trouble. He buried it. He wanted nothing to do with it. In other words, what separated these three servants wasn't the amount they were given at the start, wasn't the amount they ended up with at the end, wasn't how successful or how much of a failure they'd been. What separated them was the relationship they had or didn't have with their master. Whether it's your career, whether it's your family life and parenting, whether it's your friendships, whether it's your leisure time, whether it's your health and fitness, the most important thing the Bible has to say about any of those isn't a set of rules, isn't a Christian lifestyle. Somebody said to me this morning, uh, Christian is a wonderful noun and a terrible adjective. In other words, it's wonderful to be called a Christian, a follower of Christ, but to describe something as Christian, Christian music, Christian work, Christian lifestyle, is to take a little bit of life and sort of bless it and say, this is good over here, the rest of the world's evil. It's not what the Bible does. It talks about Christians living a life for their master. So whatever we're doing, career, family, friendships, leisure, my ambition, my goals are going to be shaped by whatever has number one spot in my life. 
by whatever has number one spot. For the first and second servant, number one spot for them was the return of the master. For the third servant, not so much. So Jesus doesn't tell us whether it's okay for you to be ambitious in your career. What he does say is that your ambition is to be shaped by your relationship to your master. He doesn't tell us how ambitious we are meant to be, how ambitious it's okay to be for our kids. But he does say it needs to be shaped by our relationship to the one who's given us that gift in the first place. He doesn't tell us how ambitious we can be or should be for what our lives are going to achieve. But he does say that our lives should be shaped by our relationship to the one who's given us the gift of life itself. It's a precious gift. It's not to be measured in comparison with anyone else. It's to be offered back to the giver of life, the master who will return. The master who takes great pleasure in all that we do for him, in our failures as well as our successes, simply because we do it for the master. And that's what shapes who we are and what we'll achieve.